Welcome to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. Today's message is Storming the Cockpit by Pastor Sean Walton. How great is our God. This morning is all about your greatness. It's all about your glory. I pray that as we open your word, we would see your glory. I pray that as we open your word, you would open our hearts. I pray that your word would find good soil in our hearts. Father, your word and your power are not separate. God said, and light was. Father, I pray today that your word would enter our hearts and that the Holy Spirit will allow a harvest in our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. If you've got your Bibles, like to meet me in Exodus chapter 7. <clears throat> we continue our series through the book of Exodus. Anybody here like plane travel? You do? Yeah, look, I'm, I'm neither here nor there. If I've got to go from point A to point B and I have a choice between taking a plane or a boat, I'll always take the boat. Why? Because I can swim but I can't fly if something goes wrong. Uh, but for those, we know COVID's opened up and we know there's a few people that are travelling and I'd like to share some wisdom with you. For those who are about to fly and you're booking seats on a plane, always book a seat right over the top of the black box. Because if, because if something goes wrong, that's the first place everybody looks. Second thing is, always, if you can't do that, book a seat at the back of the plane, because no plane's ever backed into a mountain. (laughs) And the most important one is, stop watching air crash investigation. (laughs) This morning, uh, as we work our way through Exodus chapter 7, we come to, I think, one of the most important themes of the Bible, but certainly one of the most important themes of the book of Exodus, and it's all about the human heart. Uh, Make no apologies, Sunday mornings, uh, if you go back through uh, the six years almost that I've been here, every sermon on a Sunday morning is aimed at the heart, there's a reason for that. Uh, If you are on a plane and you are travelling on a plane or a boat, you'll notice that no matter how big those planes are, uh, everything that happens to that plane or inside of that plane is controlled by a very small area called the cockpit. If you find yourself on an enormous cruise ship and you will find that everything that happens on board and and concerning that cruise ship happens in a place called the wheelhouse. And and although uh, it is a big ship and and there's a lot that entails that, it is controlled by a very small part. The wheelhouse is a very small part of that boat and the cockpit's a very small part of the plane. But what happens in the cockpit is everything is governed in there, right? Altitude is governed, direction is governed, the compass bearings are taken from there, we, we, we know how high we are, we know how low we are, all, this is the really important one, all the warning bells are in the cockpit. Just an, I've watched far too much aircraft investigation, but I've realised something, when all the bells and whistles are going off in there, everyone in the back is completely oblivious. But if we could, for a moment... If we had a cockpit of our lives, it would be the human heart. You see, there's a part of each and every one of us that governs everything that we do. There's a part of each and every one of us, it's called the inner person. And whenever 
Whenever the Bible is speaking about the heart, whenever Jesus spoke about the heart, he wasn't talking about the physical thing that pumps blood. He's talking about the place that controls our emotions. He's, he's talking about the control room of our lives. You see, so often what happens on the outside is a result of what's going on in the heart. So therefore, if we get the control room right, if we get everything happening right in the cockpit, everything else will be all right. If we, the place of the heart is the place of the mind and the emotions and the will. It's the seat for all of our desires and all of our priorities. And so I have found that if we, if God can get access to the cockpit, things change on the outside. Today we're going to begin a journey where God will storm the cockpit of Pharaoh's heart. But it's not just Pharaoh. You see, Pharaoh has got the wrong person. Absolutely, Pharaoh's got the wrong person in control. But the problem with Israel is they've got far too many people in the cockpit. If you enter the cockpit of a plane, you'll find there's a pilot, a co-pilot, and a funny little dude sitting at the back that's counting the kilometres and the fuel. He's the most important guy. (laughs) Because if he gets it wrong, you're in a little bit of trouble. But we have far too many occupants in our cockpit. Israel had far too many occupants in their cockpit. We're going to fast forward for a moment just so that we're clear on a few things. When Israel is delivered, when they leave the land of Egypt, when they cross the Red Sea and they enter the wilderness, something that we need to know that's not told in all the Sunday school stories is that many of them took idols from Egypt with them. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 20 and Acts chapter 7 make it clear they took the idols. Some of them even took a tabernacle of Moloch with them. They had, the, the, the indoctrination of Egypt had certainly permeated the heart of the Israelites. What we also see is, interestingly enough, is we're not told this all that often either, is when Israel do cross the Red Sea, many Egyptians go with them. Many Egyptians have got to the point of going, Pharaoh's gone cray-cray, we're going with these guys. And... Uh, today, as we begin the journey through, we will begin with the first plague. And as we do, we're going to see that God is very purposeful and very intentional. The ten plagues are not God had a bad day and decided to lash out. That's not what's going on here. Uh, we will see a glorious, gracious, merciful God that seeks to enter the cockpit of everybody's life. But we need to know a few things. First thing is, he doesn't share. I wonder whether many of us may have too many occupants in the cockpit. The other thing is, God won't be one of the people in your cockpit. He will be the one in the cockpit. In the physical world, if me and my wife travel anywhere, there's not even a conversation. I'm in the driver's seat. However, God doesn't ride in the passenger seat. When we finish today, we're going to find that as we expose a hard heart, that's bad. A cluttered heart, that's bad. But the neutral heart is very, very dangerous. And we'll expose what a neutral heart looks like. 
If you've got your Bibles, you've met me in Exodus chapter 7. Let's begin our journey as we work our way through. Let's begin with the very first verses. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. Verse 3, really important verse that we need to spend a little bit of time on before we go any further today. Verse 3, But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. You will read a similar sentence to that 18 times throughout the course of the book of Exodus. But what you will find is that there's some differentiation. Often we read this and we need to cover a few things off. We read this and we think, uh, poor unsuspecting Pharaoh, God's going to insert evil into his heart just to complete his and accomplish his purposes. But that's that's not what's going on here. In fact, what we find is that throughout the course of Exodus, uh, in the 18 times that this is mentioned, the agent of the hardening six times is God. Four times God says, I will, which is a prophecy. Five times the agent of the hardening is not mentioned. And three times Pharaoh is the one that hardens his heart, which is interesting. But the very first time that it's mentioned is in chapter 8, verse 15, where it says, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And the hard heart, we're going to go on a journey with Pharaoh now uh, as we work our way through the plagues. And we're going to see that what sin will do in your life is it will take you from bad to worse. And it always begins reasonably small, uh, small resistances to God. We block our ears to the Holy Spirit in small ways. We resist the urge and the convictions of the Holy Spirit. And the more we do it, and the more we do it, the deeper and the deeper and the deeper we go. And that's what happens to Pharaoh. Sin is very deceitful and it hardens our heart ever more as we go along. But let's unpack this for a moment because uh, the word hardened is translated to us, hardened three times in the Hebrew language. It's three different Hebrew words. The first one is the transliteration is chazak, which is important because what we read about uh, the hardened heart that is translated there, uh, chazak means strengthened. And so what we find is God is removing mercy. He's not inserting any evil. And so strengthened is, this is the position of the heart and I'm going to strengthen it. I'm going to give it over. Let me, let me explain what that looks like in the New Testament. In Romans chapter 1, we need to be clear about, a few, before we go Paul, Pharaoh or anybody else, there's a few things we need to be clear on that Paul highlights in Romans chapter 1. Starting in verse 18, he says, every single person is either under the wrath of God or in Christ. And before we go, before we cry out, well, that's a little bit unfair, Paul goes on and says, but God's invisible divine attributes are clearly seen in all the world around us, but everybody is suppressing the truth. Everybody's pushing it down. Everybody's ignorant of it. I wrote about it this morning. I have conversations with people regularly where they reference the universe. There are, there are people today making covenants with the universe. Tell me we haven't gone crazy. But the conversation sounds like this. Well, you know, I thought I would do this, this and this, but the universe had another idea. In one of those conversations recently, I said, you know, the universe has got a name. His name is Jesus. But what they recognise is there is something outside of us 
there is somebody, if you boil it down, there is somebody bigger than us. I remember my grandfather-in-law came to Christ one morning. He he struggled uh, through many emotional challenges. And one morning he woke up sitting in his lounge room and he turned to his wife and said, June, there's somebody bigger than us. And he came to church and gave his heart to Christ. Praise God. And if you knew my grandfather-in-law, you would go, really? That guy? But that's how God works, right? Uh, what I found, uh, and uh, in November we're going to do a reaching out series and we're going to cover the Paul, Paul the Apostle. Sometimes the heart you think is the hardest, God softens so beautifully. So the first one is Jezak, it's strengthened. If you read on in Romans chapter 1, you'll read a phrase that says uh, that uh, although they'd been suppressing the truth and, and the, it goes on to list the evil that they were doing and even the, the debaucherous things that men were doing, all those things, it says that God gave them over. It means exactly the same thing in the Greek as, it does, as what we're reading here. God just pulls his hand back and says, you know what, if that's what you want, I'm going to give you your sin which you're choosing, but I'm going to give you all the consequences that go with it. The second Hebrew word is the word kabad, K-A-B-A-D, and that simply means stubborn, it simply means resistant, simply means hard like concrete. And so Pharaoh's heart is, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart is listed as, as a strengthening and as a, as a willful resistance. And the last one is enormously profound. And we're going to cover that when we get to verse 14. But in the Hebrew, it's kabed, which is K-A-B-E-D. And God uses that word intentionally when he's talking to Moses in describing Pharaoh's heart. Let's read on. He says, But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh's heart will become resistant. I will strengthen Pharaoh in his prideful, sinful resilience against me. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, signs and wonders don't always cause faith, friends. Uh, Throughout the Bible, signs and wonders, although they are both miraculous, although they are both supernatural, a sign is a supernatural or miraculous event that points to a divine truth. A wonder is a supernatural or event or miracle that is about getting our attention. God is always trying to get our attention. 2,000 years ago, the God-man rose from the dead. How much more attention do we need than that? And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen. Please highlight, circle and underline the word will not. It's not that he could not. He will not. And what happens after that, God says then. Then I will, I love these words. Let's read this whole verse and unpack what what God is saying here. Then I shall lay my hand on Egypt. Just as we're working our way through, please remember that when God lays his hand on Egypt, Israel is in Egypt. I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts. Powerful, powerful word. But we'll come back to that one in a moment. 
And I will bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment, which will be the plagues. We'll get to more of them as we work our way through. Verse 5, then the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. I love these verses. Uh, what? <clears throat> what God is saying is then, after the fact that, you know what, we're going to give Pharaoh a chance and, and when he refuses to listen, when his heart won't turn, when his heart won't soften, then I will lay my hand. And in the Hebrew, that, that means to put my hand into. And when God puts his hand into it, it means God's no longer going to be passive. And when God puts his hand into, things are never the same again. I will put my hand into. There is a, there is a, a, a period of time of grace until God puts his hand in. And we need to press the pause button here because this applies to us today. How does this apply to us today? And, and you're welcome this morning for the pastoral, pastoral pep talk, but the reality is simply this. Often we live in this bubble where we think, well, I'll just do whatever I want down here and I'll just say... I'll just say sorry to God sometime and we think that that's okay. We think that, you know what, we live in this grace bubble where it doesn't really matter what I do, we'll all sort it out at the end. But I want you to know that there is a time, the minute you start to become resistant to God, the minute you start to to justify your sin, the minute you turn your face away from God, the hourglass is turned upside down. Yes, there's a grace period. Yes, God will plead with you. Yes, the Holy Spirit will knock on the door of your heart. But there will come a time when God God will put his hand in and I have seen it happen many times. And so I warn you today, God doesn't play games. I have seen outside of Queensland, I have seen instances uh, in, in people's lives and I have seen instances in leadership, church leadership, and many people have said, oh, you know, God's, what's God doing? Is, is, God, is God blind? He doesn't do anything? I'm telling you now, there will come a day. God will give grace, yes. God will play the strings of our hearts, yes. God will plead for repentance, yes. But if we find ourselves never on our knees, friends, we, we make the mistake that repentance is a one-off thing that we do way back then, but repentance is the Christian life. The Christian life is a life lived on our knees, uh, understanding that we need the grace of Jesus each and every day. There will come a time, then I will lay my hand on Egypt, says God, and bring my hosts. I love this. See, God's about to move in power in Egypt. God is about to storm the cockpit of Pharaoh's heart. He's about to storm the cockpit of the Egyptian's heart. But before he does, and as he's in the process... He's preparing and organising his people. Because that word, my hosts, is a military term. It speaks about organising the armies for war. And uh, what God is doing right now, which is really important for where we're going to finish, but what God is doing right now is he's removing the middle ground. I don't know where we invented this. I don't know how in the last 2,000 years we invented a third response to Jesus. There is either Jesus is the Lord and Saviour of our lives or he is not. We've kind of developed this middle ground, this neutral territory where we think, well, you know, I'll just be a good person and I can have, I can love the world and I can love Jesus. Friends, I'm here to warn you today, you cannot love the world and Jesus at the same time. Amen. 
because you are in a battle. The minute you put your hand up and you say, I'm in Jesus, you have just entered a war. You've just crossed sides. I I remember when I played football, uh, I played for a team for two years and uh, had a fallout with the coach and decided I'd go and play for another team. But wisdom wasn't with me that day because when I signed up for the new team, I didn't look at the roster and realised that the new team I just signed up for, the first game, was against my old team. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, I learned persecution. (laughs) But that's what happens when you put your hand up for Jesus. You will find that the minute you put your hand up for Jesus, you're in a battle. Your friends are all, all, all of a sudden, people who you work with and you think are your good friends and they love you, that you're the enemy. Guys that I had played football with for a couple of years, all of a sudden hated me and wanted to kill me. You'd be pleased to know they didn't succeed, but they tried. <laughs> and I need to warn you today, one, you're in a battle. You're in a war. You have an enemy that wants the same territory as God wants. Your heart. And when we think about physical things, how many planes take off and land every day? Not a problem in the world. Awesome, excellent, wonderful. But just, just a few weeks ago, I didn't mention it deliberately, but just a few weeks ago we slipped past 9-11. And so, friends, I want to ask you, when the wrong person's in the cockpit how the whole vessel can be used for a whole different purpose. How many aeroplanes take off and land every day, not a problem, but when the wrong person's in the cockpit, we blow buildings up. Before we go any further, who's in your cockpit? Who's in the driver's seat. God's about to move in power in Egypt. The first thing he does is organise his people. Same thing today. We pray God move in power. I do. I pray God lay your hand on... (laughs) It's a scary prayer. God, put your hand into Brisbane right now. Stretch out your hand and lay your hand on Brisbane. Careful what you pray for because that may... (laughs) Israel might have been praying that and it turned out to be ten plagues, right? but oh, how God impacted. Um, Just as a digression, to fully understand the book of Revelation, it would be helpful, as we do, to grab a greater understanding of the ten plagues because there's a very similar thing happening. We have two empires that set themselves up as we start to approach Pharaoh's heart. Uh, Pharaoh was exactly the same as Caesar. You see, by the time Jesus came in the first century, there were temples scattered all around the Holy Land and Asia Minor for worship to Caesar. In fact, there was becoming an increasing demand in the book of Revelation, we find you either worship Caesar or we're going to kill you. But Pharaoh was considered to be God. He thought he was God. And... I began to learn that many of the people I talk to in the streets think they're God too. They think they control their own destiny. Friends, can I help you out this morning? Walt Disney has not helped our young people. 
you watch every Walt Disney movie, the underlying message is if you dream enough, you can control your own destiny, you can have whatever you want, you can do whatever you want. It is a capital I in every Walt Disney movie. But they're selling your kids a dream, a false one. I will lay my hand on Egypt, I will bring my hosts, my people out, and they shall know. Let's keep reading on, I love this. Uh, how many people would like to see greater measures of the power of God in your life? I'm going to help you to understand how that happens, because we're going to see God's power absolutely right now. We're going to start to see God's power in Egypt. And have a look at what happens and how it happens. Verse 6, Moses and Aaron did so. They did, underline these words, I love these next words. They did just as just as the Lord had commanded them. Now, Moses was 80 years old and Aaron's 83 years old. Anybody fall into that? Don't raise your hands this morning. But <laughs> God, nobody ever retires from ministry. You refire. For those that are wondering here this morning. Verse 6, Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as. Here's where all the problems in our lives often begin and it flows downhill from here, where we do anything that is not just as. God has said. We're going to find that when Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh, when they do just as God had said, we're going to begin to see God's power move and impact Pharaoh very deeply. Just as God had said. Not not a little bit of what God said, a little bit of what the world says, and a little bit of what we think is right. They did just as God had said. Let's keep reading on. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh. Let's keep reading. Then it may become a serpent. Verse 10. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. And we know the story, right? Let's fast forward for a moment and get down to verse 14 because the crunch is coming in verse 14. But uh, we know what happens. Uh, Moses, uh, Aaron throws down his staff and it becomes a serpent. But then, of course, all of the wise men and the, uh, and the necromancers from Egypt, they throw down their staff and it becomes a snake as well. This is going to become important when we get to the Nile. But notice something. Aaron's staff swallowed their staff. We have an enemy that sometimes counterfeits, but God's power always triumphs. God's truth always rises above. A little bit more about that in a moment. Coming down, but Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Verse 13, still, still Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not, not could not, but he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Now, as we begin our journey into the first of the plagues, we're going to ask why the Nile in a moment. Very, very important. Each one of these plagues, as we work our way through, just so that we know, is an attack on the gods that Egypt worshipped. Let's have a look at verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. That word there is kebed, which means to be heavy, weighty, or to become heavy. Very intentional. Very intentional that God uses that word. Very intentional that God uses it there. I did not appreciate the, the importance and the intentionality until I understood a little bit about Egypt culture. You see, in ancient Egypt culture, when an individual died, they believed... Have a listen to how sometimes this is very close 
to what we all believe. They believe that somebody would go to the underworld and when you went to the underworld, a, a person's or an individual's heart was placed on the scales of truth. Uh, one end on one plate was the feather of truth and righteousness and, and on the other plate was placed the individual's heart. And if your heart was weighty, if your heart was heavy, if your heart was weighed down with misdeeds, then you were condemned and thrown to the devouress. They had some weird ideas back in Egypt, didn't they? Plus they worship cats, so kind of... <laughs> they deserve everything they get. Well, God is saying to the man who thought he was God, I've weighed your heart and it's heavy. It's full of sin, it's full of evil, which is enormously important. It's not that it's just hard, it's not that he's prideful necessarily, simply that it is weighed down, it is deeply, deeply sinful. And God wants to storm the cockpit of Pharaoh's heart. And the first place he starts is the Nile. Let's read on for a little bit. Go to Pharaoh in the morning. It is believed that it was customary for Pharaoh and others to worship or practice ceremonial acts of worship on the banks of the Nile uh, in the morning, but there's no clear evidence. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him, and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me. But in the Hebrew, that serve is worship. The enemy wants the same thing as God does. He wants your worship. Every single person that breathes oxygen is worshipping. The question I have is, who are you worshipping today? Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness, but as for for you have not obeyed, thus says the Lord, but by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with this staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile. And we know that the Nile is turned to blood. We know that everything in the river dies. The fish die. There goes the fishing trips, right? The fish die, the water die, it stinks. Uh, why would you turn the Nile to blood? Why not just turn it to something else? The reality is the blood is significant of the fact that the Nile is dead. If you have a look at the map and you have a look at Egypt, you'll notice that Egypt relied very heavily on the Nile. If you take the Nile River out of Egypt, you will find that Egypt is nothing more than a barren, desolate, desert wasteland. And so for the Egyptians, uh, for those that were in ancient Egypt, the Nile had become their security. The Nile had become their source of prosperity because every year seasonally, the Nile would flood and deposit huge amounts of silt, uh, which meant they had massive crops. They were enormously prosperous, they were enormously secure, and they were enormously powerful. And they viewed the Nile as their source of security, source of life, and source of prosperity. So where does God go? Straight for the heart. Straight for everything you base your life on. Straight for the foundation of your life. God always goes straight for the heart. Sometimes it hurts. You see, the word plague is only used a handful of times in the book of Exodus, but every time it's used, it's in reference to the ten plagues. And the word plague uh, means to wound, to inflict a blow, pestilence, 
And so what is God doing? God wants to inflict a blow. God wants to wound. And some very confronting words in the prophet Hosea, chapter 6, verses 1 to 3, you'll read verses like this. Let us return to the Lord. For he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us. Why? That he may set us free and that we may live for him. Sometimes God allows these events so that he can get right into our hearts. As we work our way through the ten plagues, Egypt worshipped at least 80 gods and goddesses in total. But every single one of them surrounded three major facets. First one was the Nile, the second one was the land, and the last one was the sun. And you'll notice that every single one of the plagues is a plague against one of those. What God is doing right now is reaching into the heart of Pharaoh and pulling out all of these gods. But it's not always the Egyptians. And it's not always the unbelievers who have far too many gods in their hearts. Egypt was all about this life, was all about the pleasure of this life. Uh, Last night, I watched the movie The Apostle Paul. I love The Apostle Paul, but more about him later. Uh, I love his demeanour and just uh, everything about The Apostle Paul. But it wasn't an overly fantastic movie. It was reasonably factual. But what I loved about it was there's a conversation between The Apostle Paul and the prefect of the then uh, jail that he was in, because it's all about Luke going to see him in jail. And there's a conversation. Paul asks the prefect, he says, have you ever been sailing? Prefect says, yeah, I enjoy sailing. And he says, when you're out on the water, he says, have you ever put your hand in and picked up a cup of water? He says, you'll notice that immediately you pick up that cup of water, he said, the water begins to run through your hands until there's nothing there. Paul says to the prefect, he says, that is this life that is given to each man. The prefect is astounded that Paul is not afraid of death. In fact, Paul is embracing death. Paul is like, please, take me to... (laughs) There is a greater joy. But what Paul goes on to say is, this is, he says, you Romans, and it's the same for Egypt, right? He says, you Romans live for what's in your hand. It's all about sapping the most out of what's in your hand. He says, but it runs through your fingers quicker than you can grab it. That's the message of Ecclesiastes. He says, whereas I and everyone associated with the way, he says, we live for the ocean, for eternity. He says, you grab hold of this piece of time in your hand that slips through quicker than you can grab hold of it. And that sums up the Egyptian culture in a heartbeat. They're all about this life. They're all about the pleasures of this life. When you read about Moses, you will say, it says in Hebrews 11, he forsook, he chose to suffer reproach with the people of God than the fleeting pleasures of sin. in Pharaoh's house. Friends, today... God wants the territory of your heart. I want to finish today with a passage of scripture in Matthew chapter 12. This sometimes a little bit misunderstood. 
Because on the outside, and although it has some application in this area, on the outside it looks like it's talking about deliverance and all these sorts of things, when in fact it has a deeper message, a message about the heart that's for each and every one of us. Let's read the passage. Chapter 12, verse 43. You can read it later if you want to. Steve should know this passage quite well. Verse 43. When the... These are a really important word. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house. Interesting term. From which I came... And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. That's how most of us like our house, right? No cats. Verse 45, then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. When we read those verses, we we, we think to ourselves, well, this is all about deliverance. It's all about when when God casts demons out of our lives and and so forth. And although there's there's an application there to some extent, and, and there's certainly some truth we learn about that, there's an underlying message which is far deeper, and it's found even in the last verses, because Jesus goes on and says, so also will it be with this evil generation. And underneath all of that, we we pick up the important part is the house, which is the heart of the person. And we understand that uh, the evil influence has gone out of the person. We understand that. And and the arid and waterless places can can absolutely be something we don't understand. Uh, And yes, it can be a reference to the demons and the pigs, which is a sermon for three or four years from now. But the most important part is when that evil spirit returns... Everything's swept it in order, but there's something really, really important. It's empty. The condition of that person is worse because the house was unoccupied. The enemy or the evil influence is able to come back. Why? Because the house is unoccupied. Jesus is speaking to Pharisees in a day when Pharisees and holiness and religion look like we'll just clean up the outside of the cup and dish. We'll sweep everything nice and clean. Everything will be really, you know, uh, if we transfer it into today's language, it sounds like this. I go to church once or twice a month. Um, I give my money and, and, and all those sorts of things. And, and those things don't make us a Christian. It's not, a, it's not also about what we subtract out of our lives. Let's think about this for a moment. Because often we think, well, holiness is all about what I get out of my life. But, but if Christianity and holiness is I don't drink, I don't smoke, and I don't swear, the telegraph pole down the road is a Christian. <laughs> but we can be in danger of occupying a neutral kind of territory. Where, yes, we affirm Jesus. Yes, Jesus is a good person. I was shattered recently when I found out that 75% of Christians in the United Kingdom think Jesus is just one of the ways to the Father. How did we get that far away from that? And what Jesus is speaking against here is reformation without regeneration. 
moralism. We can clean up the house and everything looks good and I don't smoke anymore. I know non-Christians that can give up smoking. I don't smoke anymore, I don't drink anymore, I don't swear anymore. But I want to ask a question today. Who occupies your heart? Because neutral territory is the most dangerous for every Christian. Why? Because we think we see when in fact we're blind. You see, the hard heart, the heart that is full of evil and sin, you can reach that heart. To the Christian that's co- whose cockpit is full of idols, you can reach that heart. But to the heart who thinks I'm on the right path and I'm righteous and I'm holy and it's full of idols, Jeremiah, one of the greatest prophets, started prophesying when he was about 12, prophesied to the king, but one of the most haunting prophecies against the people of Israel or Judah at that time is each and every Sabbath you guys come out and everything looks good on the outside. You guys are in the right robes, you've got all the right colours, everything's dressed out to the nines, everything's fine, all the sacrifices look good, the ordinance is good, but behind the veil, God's presence is not there. He left a long time ago because your idols are stuffed behind the veil. God doesn't share. As we finish today, I finish with just a few simple questions. Question number one. Have you ever let God into the cockpit of your life? If not, today's the day. Is your cockpit overcrowded? Do you love Jesus? Do you have you got a seat in your cockpit for Jesus, or does Jesus have the seat in your cockpit? There is no more frightening thing to think of than an aeroplane in midair and no one in the cockpit. Is your heart empty? God wants the territory of your heart. Revelation 3.20 says, Jesus says to Laodicea, I stand at the door and knock. You know, sometimes God knocks through circumstances. Sometimes God knocks through other people. Sometimes God knocks through his word. But God is standing at the door and knocking. And God is not talking to unbelievers. That is a letter written to church, to his people. I stand at the door and knock. I'm out on the porch. But I want to come in. I want to come in and I want to eat with you and you with me, which is a picture in the first century of just beautiful intimacy. And so I have a question today. Will you let God in? Let's pray. Father, I, I pray that, our, that the eyes of our heart would see you and that we would let you into our lives and into our hearts. Father, I pray 
that you would confront our overcrowded cockpits. We all allow far too many people. We allow far too many things into our hearts. We allow far too many things to be our security, to be our prosperity, to be our source of life. Thank you, Jesus, that you came to be all of those things for us. Thank you, Jesus, that you didn't come just to simply make bad people good. You came to make dead people live. I pray that each and every one of us would let you in to occupy our hearts. In your wonderful and glorious name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. To be notified when the next episode is available, subscribe on our website at therock.org.au. You can also connect with us on Facebook at The Rock Christian Church. We hope you have been blessed today and we look forward to you joining us for our next episode.